imagine what we call the post-pollution world. Okay. Well, pollution is the raw material to make all of the things that we need. Welcome to The Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-focused individuals looking to learn the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and on the show today is Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, CEO of Lancetech, one of the most important carbon recycling companies in climate tech. Lancetech takes carbon and turns it into useful materials like clothing, jet fuel, and shoes. They've got partnerships with Zara, On, the Swiss shoe company, and major airlines to provide sustainable aviation fuel. This is not just a hype machine either. They recently secured a $500 million strategic partnership with Brookfield Asset Management, one of the largest alternative asset managers in the world, which includes net zero finance superhero Mark Carney. Climate tech companies like Lanzatech often have two distinct types of problems to solve, physical ones and financial ones. We've covered a range of physical hurdles climate tech companies are facing on the show previously. But for the first time on the Net Zero Life, we're discussing the financial hurdles. That's what makes this episode so special, and why Lanzatech's recent $500 million strategic partnership is so important, because they are in the midst of crossing that financial valley of death, and if they succeed, they'll build the path for others to follow. Jennifer is the author or co-author of 50 U.S. patents and more than 30 scientific publications. In 2003, she was the first woman awarded the Malcolm E. Prude Award from the Council for Chemical Research. In 2010, she was the recipient of the Leadership Award from the Civil Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative for her work in establishing the technical and commercial viability of sustainable aviation biofuels. She currently serves on the board of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory Biofuels Advisory Committee. Dr. Holmgren holds a BSc degree from Harvey Mudd College, a PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, as well as an MBA from the University of Chicago. Jennifer is an inspirational leader who is committed to ensuring humanity achieves a post-pollution world, and doing that quickly. Her work is dedicated to a net-zero future, and we discussed her climate origin story, her passions, and her influences in detail during the show. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, the pleasure is truly all mine. I thought that we could begin with the best class that you've ever taken. You have an incredible academic background. You went to Harvey Mudd, science and technology-based undergrad, and then immediately go and do a PhD in chemistry. And then 20 years or so later, uh, go get your MBA at Booth, uh, University of Chicago. So throughout all of that time, what, what would you say was the best class you ever took? (laughs) <laughs> I I loved a lot of my classes, um, but um, gosh, I'm going to have to think back to history in high school. I took an AP history class that was the absolutely coolest class because the professor, the teacher was so cool and he made everything so personal and you could learn history through cartoons and what was going on at the time was not reflected in a dry book, but rather in kind of your imagination of, of what it really looked like. And that was a really cool class. What was the history class of? It was U.S. history, actually. Um, so we went from early days um, to to basically at the time modern modern days. So it was, you know, in the 70s. Have you read 1491 by Charles C. Mann by chance? No, I haven't. Tell me about it. 
It is, um, thanks for the opportunity to tell you about it. I'd be happy to. It is, it's um, a brief history of the Americas before Columbus arrives. And it's, uh, the thesis of the book is basically that U.S. history is very short, right? 1776, although maybe 1492, a little bit longer. Um, but that the history before 1492 deserves more than a couple paragraphs in the history books. And so um, for those looking to learn more about indigenous populations and uh, the history and the culture that they created, I highly recommend it. Cool. I'll, I'll definitely look for that. I'm actually a big a big fan of, of indigenous culture. In fact, uh, very interested, but in the later, you know, the Anasazi and the Navajo and other, other cultures, I've always found them fascinating. So, um, I'll definitely look for that. Yeah. Let me know what you think. Um, so, okay. Interesting way to pivot history. I, I asked what the favorite classes, um, and history, and yet you continue to go STEM, 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 and STEM. So what about, <laughs> um, what about the STEM classes kept your interest that, um, led to you pursuing both undergrad and graduate degrees? Well, my high school chemistry teacher actually was fantastic also. And, um, I used to um, love the lab classes. I really got into the lab classes. So I've always liked math. I've always liked chemistry. I've always liked physics. I wanted to be an astronaut, you know, and then I fell and realized that actually what's really funny is that what I loved wasn't necessarily going to the moon, not that I was going to get there, frankly, um, but, but it was really the fact that this problem, this massive problem had gotten solved in a short period of time, right? Uh, Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon, um, eight years later, we're at on the moon <laughs> and um, solving big problems really got me excited. And that's that's why I fell in love with science, because science didn't just explain the world. But once you understood things, you were able to apply that to solve problems and solving big problems is is kind of been the theme of the things I care about and have tried to do. Amazing. And we'll jump into that as we go through the episode We'll skip a little bit over UOP and your, your time at Honeywell and, and fast forward right into Lancetech. Um, but you have this amazing career, right? And you've, you've co-authored 50 patents, you've published in 30 scientific articles, you've led teams, you've invented sustainable aviation fuel and flew it with the Navy. And then you're about to retire. And then in 2010, you decide, no, I'm not going to retire. Instead, I'm going to become CEO of this like fledgling 30-person uh, climate tech organization. Can you tell me a little bit about your 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 framing and and your thinking at that moment in time and why you decided to take this leap of faith? Yeah, so I started my journey thinking about energy democracy. One of the things that used to keep me up at night was why 1.3 billion people on the planet didn't have access to electricity because I can't imagine life without power and how difficult it would be to do simple things, you know, like find food, get water, read a book, you know, all the things we like to do. How, how do you make those accessible? I then started to realize that actually what we needed was clean power. I started to learn about climate change and I started to realize that we have this massive carbon problem. And I also started to realize that it was going to happen in our lifetimes until early in 2010-ish kind of time frame, right before that. I always imagined, you know, this was going to affect your children, your great-grandchildren. You know, there was going to be some sea level rise, you know, hundreds of years from now. And I read an article about coffee, coffee in Colombia. 
And that climate change would mean that Colombia, my home country, would not be a coffee grower by the year 2050 if climate change was left unabated. And that was the first time I realized that, you know, this is a fundamental change to our ecosystem, to our way of life. And it's going to happen in our lifetimes. I'm going to be 90 in 2050. I'm kind of planning to be around. So, you, you know, it was kind of this aha, oh, my God moment. And so I realized that we really needed to change our carbon trajectory. And I had been working on low carbon fuels using conventional biological feedstocks. And having worked in the petro sector, I realized that the world uses 100 million barrels a day of petroleum equivalent to make our food, our fuels, our chemicals, our power. And I was using biological feedstocks where maybe I could get into the billions of gallons a year. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, <laughs> the gap is massive. And then Sean Simpson, the founder of Lancetec, and Vinod Kosla, its largest investor, introduced me to a technology that used carbon monoxide. And during my PhD thesis, I had used carbon monoxide. I was doing a Fischer-Tropsch catalysis. And I knew that carbon monoxide could be found everywhere. You could turn waste of every kind. You could include industrial waste. And I, I said to myself, oh my gosh, if this technology scales, if this technology works, it's going to have the massive impact we need. And so I went, well, I got to do this because, you know, how can I not do this? How can I not try to get across the valley of death and take this technology to commercial? So that's actually what went through my head. I'm curious, who are your influences at this time, right? How are you learning about climate change and, and where is it in your daily media, the specific people that you're talking with, interacting? Because, you know, relatively, it's still early. While a lot of people are already talking about climate change, I mean, for, for years and years and years, the general population doesn't have the same um, zeitgeist about it. So at this time, when you're reading this material, where is it coming from? Who's influencing you? Well, first of all, one of the people that's always influenced me is Sir David King. Sir David King um, was advisor to the UK government on a number of issues and then became basically the leader of the Foreign Service. I hope I got that right on on the UK side. And he he's quite he's a chemist and he's quite the student of all the issues that are happening in climate change. And he opened my eye to, to the terrifying aspects, right? I went from, okay, this is going to happen in a lifetime to the, oh, shit, this is, this is not pretty. And so he's always been one of the people whose work I follow very closely. Um, he's on the board of Lancet, one of our spin-out companies, but I've known him for almost 20 years now. Um, no, that's too many years, 15 years now. And um, he... Um, he is a key person. I follow people like like Michael Mann. I read hot takes. Um, I really enjoyed that. And I just read as much as I can. IPCC reports, you know, combinations, summaries of IPCC reports, work that the IEA is doing. I actually read a lot, probably more than most sensible people. I spend all my time reading articles uh, and many of them are on energy and on climate change. 
when you're reading these articles, are there specific things that you're looking to take away? I ask because LinkedIn is a very popular place to post new IPCC reports. Whether or not people are reading those is a different question. And for the everyday listener or myself, who's, you know, I'm not an expert in climate models. I, you know, have a general understanding of climate science. But if I go through and read the IPCC report or the summary for politicians, what are the specific things that you're looking to take away when you read them? Well, one is I, I would say there's three elements. One is I like to understand the science and I, I, I'm not a climate scientist, which means I don't understand it deeply, but I like to understand what people are talking about, what they're seeing in the models, et cetera. The other thing I like to look at is um, communication. So I read a lot about how to communicate climate change, how to go from skeptic to non-skeptic, how do you convince people that they ought to be looking at this? So that's something I focus a lot on. And I tend to use pictures of the tragedies as a way to communicate that something is going on and we need to pay attention and act. So the second thing I focus on is communication. And then the third thing I focus on is trying to understand the policy angle and how we can, one, use policy to impact carbon emissions. But also, I like to understand how we can use policy to help accelerate new technologies. I don't believe we will be successful in bending the carbon curve unless we have technologies that help us substitute for the things we already do today. I frankly don't believe we're going to solve the climate crisis by saying, okay, people, we're going to go back to the dark ages. Nobody's going to fly. Nobody's going to eat meat. Nobody's going to do, you know, wear new clothes. Nobody's going to do any of these things, right? And so for me, it's about policy that enables technologies like the one we've developed to go faster. I'm willing to accept that technologies take a long time to scale from a scientific, technical, engineering perspective. I'm not prepared to accept the amount of dead time that it takes to scale technologies because you're trying to get financing for the next scale. How do I get enough money to build my pilot? How do I get enough money to build the demo? How do I get enough money to build the first commercial, right? These things, when they're risk adjusted, the cost of capital is massive. And many startup companies fail, not because they don't have good ideas, but because they haven't been able to scale, because they haven't had the money to go to the next level. We're talking about putting a lot of steel in the ground and that is super expensive. So I... I focus on those things. I, I focus on understanding what's going on, who's thinking what, and how I can help impact it. We'll definitely go back to whether or not people should go back to the dark ages. I want to touch on uh, something that I think you were at in person, but the TED countdown where we've got um, Chris James Chris James from Engine Number One, the CEO of Dutch Shell, and the activist. And I don't know if you were in the room, but there's clearly- I was there. Yeah, so there's clearly a dichotomy. I have it in my notes to go back to it. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective, but it's a perfect segue into the first the first principles of what Lanzatech does. And um, in addition, I, th- I think telling us a little bit about the technology is super helpful here, high level for the listener. But what I'm super curious about is, and you just touched on it, is is the first principles of scaling technology and innovation and crossing that valley of death and what it looks like to go from POC to small scale testing to you know commercial feasibility to industrialization and um, you know from you're an expert in it and I'd love to hear the kind of the principles and the ideas and the frameworks that other people should understand as they go through this process. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think the first thing we need 
to agree on is that building something that looks like a refinery takes time. Let's forget about the technology for a second, but let's talk about how long it takes just to build something. So, you know, you order a compressor, it arrives 12 months later, 14 months later, 16 months later. And so there is this built-in time lag in just the fact that you've got to go one scale to the next scale to the next scale. You cannot go from a really cool lab idea that you've tested in a milliliter to something that's, you know, 50,000 liters. You can't do that overnight. And so what, what we all need to agree on is that new technology goes through a 20 to 30 year cycle to get to what I call scale. And scale to me is not building the first commercial. It's not building the second commercial. It's the point where you've deployed enough You've reached that exponential deployment part of the curve that you can see one everywhere. And I think solar is the ideal example of that, okay? So in 2010, we had the Solyndra thing and it was like, oh my God, you know, solar is always going to be 10 years out. Well, in 2020, you couldn't turn around without seeing a solar installation. You got to get to the exponential part of the curve. And so that is a really, really important element of, of success. So that means you've got to build the first commercial, then you've got to build a few more, and then that will become the exponential curve. That's why these cycles are so long. And so the way we did it is we did lab, small lab, large lab pilot, demo, we did three demos, commercial, okay? That took 15 years. And now we're at the building more and more plants, hoping to get to that exponential part of the curve. I don't think most people appreciate the amount of time it takes and the amount of capital. Lancetech has raised $500 million of capital, okay? Over that now 17-year period. It just takes time and it takes money. And, and so the reason I care about financing is because the cost of capital building a pilot or a demo or a first commercial for a company like us is very different than building a first of a kind for a company like a Shell or a Suncor or a Mitsui, right? They can get access to capital and, and it's very hard for us. And so to me, the reason I set up uh, policy is important is because I think one of the things the governments are starting to do now across the world, I see it across the world, they're trying to help get the first commercial plant built because that de-risking enables the rest to happen. Um, so I, I really think private capital is not sufficient. It has to be private-public partnerships to go fast so that you can build the first ones. And in terms of the types of capital, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but um, you know, offtake agreements, debt financing, equity, is, is there specific portions that are the correct way, correct quote quotes, to do it in the beginning versus what we have now? I mean, today, we've got the likes of Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Microsoft Innovation, Climate Fund, um, that are willing to fund these green premiums. Um, but I imagine 15 years ago, that was not necessarily the case. Well, first of all, 15 years ago, the thing that wasn't the case was a realization that this would take 20 years, right? And so uh, the early funds were 10-year funds. And in a 10-year fund, you really can't scale, which means there's no exit. So there was tremendous pressure on those first companies to skip steps. 
do you really need a demo that's going to take you another two years? Now, when you start skipping steps, now you're troubleshooting at commercial scale and you can't do that. That's that's $100 million worth of equipment that you're standing on top of and changing a small part is a $10 million change. So you have to take this process steps and you have to accept how long it will take to get there. And I think this is this is one big difference. Breakthrough Energy Ventures is a 20-year fund. It's not a 10-year fund. So people are starting to realize how long the journey takes. People are starting to realize that the first one will be so much more expensive and less competitive. So Breakthrough Energy Catalyst funds green premium, right? Helps to fund green premium. You see the same thing with the Innovation Fund in, in Europe. The Innovation Fund is funding how to get technologies first of a kind built the first one in a way that you can still sell the product because with the funding that they provide to you, you reduce your total cost. Um, you're starting to see real realization of that. When you ask me, and there's also, of course, loan guarantees that help small companies like USDA, like European Innovation Fund. But I would say to you, there is no right mix, okay? Every company, every CEO, is scrapping around to figure out how to build these things, right? And so, you know, we ended up using a lot of strategic investors. Um, it 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 really is a case of you do what you can, and what suits you is not necessarily the recipe that will suit somebody else. We built our first ones in China. Everybody will tell you don't do that. No, we did. It was great. Actually, they really helped us go fast. And um I, I think those are the kinds of things that most people miss, to be honest, is that you got to find your own path. Yeah, that's a great lesson for many things in addition to being, I think most people are not CEOs of corporations trying to save the world, um, but most people can try and do things uh, their own path. Let's talk about the technology a little bit. Um, for listeners who want to hear more about what Lanza Tech does, um, the Net Zero Life, we've had conversations with Diana Burkett-Rakow, SVP at Alaska Airlines, um, Elena Schmidt from RSB, Kelly Herring from Charm Industrial, who is probably, you know, 10 years behind what you're doing, although they're in the biochar. So going back to like the land use change and um, we can have that kind of discussion, but tell the listeners a little bit about how the technology works at a high level and what it is that you hope to accomplish um, by 2050. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> the technology is actually um, biology. It's 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 gas fermentation. So you're used to fermenting sugar to make beer and wine. We ferment hydrogen, carbon monoxide, and carbon dioxide gases, and we convert those to wine to beer. <laughs> except we don't use it for drinking. Um, so. It is actually quite interesting because it's a bacteria that is able to eat these gases. And more importantly, it's a continuous bioreactor. Like I said, my background is in refining and petrochem. And when you make beer, you make it in a big bat, right? And you leave it alone for three months. In refining, you actually run what you're, you're converting continuously across your, your catalyst, right? Our Bacteria does that too. It takes seconds to convert the gases to ethanol so we can do it continuously. And that's why I think this technology is so scalable because of the fact that it is rapid and very, very carbon efficient. Um, so we can use gases. Our first plants are at steel mills in China. So we use carbon monoxide from a steel mill and convert it to ethanol. Um, we have um, used gasified municipal solid waste. So you basically take solid 
trash and convert it to gas. And then our bacteria eats that. And we've converted CO2 and with hydrogen and converted that also to ethanol. So we can use all these waste feedstocks. What do I want to do by 2050? It's pretty simple. We imagine what we call a post-pollution world. Okay, where pollution is the raw material to make all of the things that we need. I believe that there is enough carbon above the ground to substitute for all of the things we use today with carbon that comes from underneath the ground. And so by 2050, I hope that us and a bunch of other companies, because we will not solve this alone, have technologies that allow you to see that what you call today pollution or a waste resource is not really pollution. It is actually raw material for whatever you want to make. After the break, we'll be right back to Jennifer with her perspectives on the roles of activists versus energy companies and the disconnect between them on the timeline for action. Are there any specific influences you had or, or educational materials that helped shape this? I, want, I almost want to call it biomimicry, which is not a term that I made up. Um, obviously, it's it's academic. But um, the, the, the idea that nature doesn't waste. And so as you're building this vision um, that you're painting so beautifully for all of our listeners, where did that inspiration come from? So, so first of all, a key influencer was um, Bill McDonald. I don't know if you've read his book, um, Cradle to Cradle. And, you know, he talks about not wasting resources. He talks about how nature, he uses the example of a cherry tree, that a cherry tree, you know, the buds fall, they become food for the next tree. You know, if you talk about nature and how we should be manufacturing things, nature doesn't waste anything. Along comes man and we waste everything. And, and that is a big difference between us and, and what everything else on this planet does, right? And, and so you call you, you made the comment about biomimicry, and maybe that's all this is is biomimicry, but it's it's accepting that waste should not be waste, that a, a circular economy must exist, and that we must reuse everything everything. And, and this is something that Bill really emphasizes in his books and they're fantastic. You should read them. Um, and, and so it's a new way of manufacturing. Um, and Sean Simpson founded the company in a lot of ways because he ran into the same view I did that biological feedstocks weren't enough. He was doing biodiesel work, for example, using biological feedstocks. And you realize this is not scalable. This competes with food. And so he um, he knew his background is plant biology, and he's absolutely brilliant, by the way. And he knew that there were organisms that ate gases. And so he and his co-founder went to the German library of microbes, basically, and purchased gas-eating organisms and started to optimize them in the lab. And um, what's actually funny is, you know, you, it was a very scrappy group, actually. I, I got introduced in 2009 to them. And, um, you know, the incubators were old refrigerators, you know. They, they, they found a way to to 
to test these things in the lab and they were getting to the next scale, you know, they just started piloting, you know, how do, how do we go further? Um, and, and it was just a, a brilliant idea. How can we use a gas that could be from a waste resource? They were in New Zealand. And so that meant, okay, where's the gas available from? Oh, steel mill. There's a steel mill right here. Started working on steel mill gases and targeted that. Uh, and that became our first target for demonstration and commercialization. It's kind of low-hanging fruit um, in terms of being able to convert something like carbon monoxide. But um, it really, you know, and then we turned the vision of the company from, okay, making ethanol, which was a very popular thing in 2010. That was when everybody was doing cellulosic ethanol and everything else to, okay, if we if we have enough waste and we can make enough ethanol, then ethanol is our feedstock. Ethanol is how we're going to make everything else because the whole world, our polyester, our polyethylene, all of this comes from ethylene. Well, ethanol can be easily converted to ethylene, which means now all of a sudden we have a path to make everything. We have a path to make everything we use in our daily lives just by being really good at making ethanol. We, we developed because nobody was doing it. Now, all that stuff, making polyester from ethylene, and and polyethylene people were already doing that right so we didn't have to reinvent that but when it came to aviation fuel which was something as you know i'm very passionate about we had to develop the technology and because it was so foreign to what we did um because it was catalysis in the traditional sense we started working with pacific northwest national lab and the department of energy because our resources had to be focused on fermentation. And we couldn't have another part of the company that was focused on catalysis, not as a small company. So we leveraged the power that is the Department of Energy National Labs and all of the brain power that's in there. And we worked with them to make an ethanol to jet fuel technology a reality. We scaled it uh, and we launched a company called Landsuggest. So, you know, that's how the company got started. And then there's this tremendous evolution to what are the feedstocks we can use, what other things we can make, and so on and so forth. Um, and I do have to tell you, and I apologize for going on and on, that, <laughs> you know, it's 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 really one of these things that also had to break a lot of paradigms, right? And you'd say, okay, well, I want you to make polyester from a steel mill gas. And people look at you and say, well, I actually want bioethanol. Give me bioethanol, you know, made from, you know, sugar or corn. I'm like, no, um, that's not what we have. So we had to develop the market. And we were very fortunate that there were these great, people that saw the vision. So there's a company called Mebel in Switzerland. Uh, Mebel is, is a company that is kind of the Intel inside. They make a lot of um, generics, what we call generic own brands for, for own brands for markets, you know, supermarkets. Yeah. And they got really excited. I met some of the, their sustainability people and they're like, but Jennifer, you know, we would love to put ethanol in our cleaning products, this recycled carbon ethanol, this waste ethanol. They sat down and talked to WWF who said, yeah, I mean, this is, gets us out of the biodiversity issues that first generation ethanol gets us on. And they created a coalition with Migros, the largest uh, department store in Switzerland, who is their owner of, okay, recycle carbon. Then we started to find more and more people, you know, Cody, Lululemon, Zara. And you can see them all of a sudden, it's like, 
oh yeah, this makes a ton of sense. But five years before, everybody was like, well, this isn't really bio. Before the before this episode, before doing research for the episode, I never had the context that polyester was polyester. You know, from it was like wool, linen, polyester, right? No, but it's a it's um it's I'm blanking on the word. We're gonna have to cut this. It's a synthetic. It's a synthetic material, and I think that's yeah, and and that's the upshot for listeners who, which uh, I'd love for you to explain better than me. But the upshot here is that. Chemical and industrial manufacturing are, however you want to calculate it, between 8 to 15% of our global greenhouse gases. And if we move to a true circular economy, and we've already pumped enough greenhouse gases to go way past 420 parts per million, like 600 parts per million, we have a feedstock available in the atmosphere. And so I think for people listening and wondering, like, what's the so what? The so what is that we can then leave all of the other carbon down under the earth's crust and use our resources today um, that are available everywhere and not, as you said earlier, go back to the dark ages. That's my interpretation. Please feel free to add on. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I actually think that you actually said something that is super important just there. You did not realize that polyester is synthetic. And I think this is the gap that we have. Everybody understands that fossil carbon is used for power. We all get that. Everybody understands that fossil carbon is used to make fuels. I would bet you almost nobody understands that fossil carbon is how everything else in your home is made. Unless it's wood, it's all fossil carbon. It's the foam, you know, um, in your couch. It is the it's it's the polyester in your shoe. It is, you know, the polyethylene in your plastic bottles. It is the polypropylene of that really cool IKEA chair that you bought, you know, um, everything. Very little that we have, 30% of the barrel of petroleum is diverted for use in chemicals to make the stuff that we use. And most people don't realize that. And so when we imagine a world where everything is made, well, from recycled carbon, when we imagine that world, we target the material side. And the reason we target that is because, first of all, we know power is going to be renewable. You don't have to waste carbon on power, right? We already knew, we already know solar, wind, geothermal. I mean, we have enough ways to create power today that are cost competitive with fossil carbon. So when I think about using carbon, I say, well, I'm not going to waste it on power. Then we go and start looking at, okay, what about fuels? I think we could argue that not too far in the distant future, we're not going to use road transport fuels because we're going to have electric vehicles. And frankly, what I hope is that we have a lot of trains too, because I really don't think individual mobility is going to solve this problem, even if it's electric, right? And and so, but at the end of the day, you can say, well, we don't need it for that. Now, aviation fuel, we need the energy density of a hydrocarbon for a long time. And so what that means is if we're going to focus on what we work on, we're going to focus on aviation fuel. That's the one that's going to need carbon. And then materials, you know, chemicals by definition are made with carbon. I don't know if single chemical that's not doesn't have a carbon backbone. So if you're on a carbon budget, you better save that for stuff is how I say. And I'll just add, 
carbon fiber, um, all the materials that our lightweight vehicles or now airplanes are using, right, comes from um, hydrocarbons. The For those who want a different perspective, although not necessarily different, um, we did an episode with um, Val, CEO and co-founder of Zeroavia, um, in terms of like the energy density of hydrogen and how that can possibly be used to power flight. That's saying it's absolutely a long way off, and companies like Boeing, um, a big one, uh, are betting on sustainable aviation fuel as a drop-in replacement because the technology advances that we need to achieve hydrogen are so far away. I think it's, at this point, blatantly clear the work that Lanza Tech is doing to move the world closer to net zero emissions. And so I'd love to talk about you and your perspectives a little bit um, more generally. I touched on it earlier, but you were at the TED Countdown um, event where we've got this activist perspective on oil, um, an, an oil company or formerly oil company, energy company, as they like to be called. You've also worked in the industry and now you're working to create that new paradigm. What is your perspective and your nuanced framework, although it doesn't have to be nuanced, of viewing these traditional companies that have profited off of fossil fuels? Um, how do you view them and what do you think about them in terms of their role in a net zero world? You know, that's a great question. And probably I will answer it differently on any given day, <laughs> um, just because there's too many angles to it. Um, if I go to the TED Countdown event, right? So... The real gap in my mind is timeline, right? There were three people sitting there talking about a problem and the need to solve a problem. The difference between them is how long do we have to solve the problem? You know, Shell arguably is one of the companies that is doing the most to try to find alternatives for what they're doing. Okay. And in fact, that's probably why their CEO was sitting there because he was one of the people that dared to sit in that room to have this discussion. Right. And, but his view of the industry and the timeline for when this massive change has to happen was very different than Lauren's. Right. That, that was really the disconnect in her mind and by the way, I'm, I'm on, on her mind too. We need to do everything and we need to do it now. And her comments about we shouldn't be taking more fossil carbon out of the ground. These are the things we should be saying and doing. We need to force our economy to create a new carbon economy and to find carbon in other places and reuse what we have. So that was really the gap in my mind is, is, Ben's view is we're doing it. We're moving as fast as we can. We've made really aggressive commitments, probably the most aggressive in the industry, but it's going to take time. And her view was, you don't have time. What are you really going to do? I think this is the urgency disconnect we have today. I think we, I see a lot of well-meaning people that don't realize that the world is literally on fire and that we can be much more creative and much more aggressive than we are today. That's the disconnect and that's what I saw. I will tell you, if you see that clip, there's the other thing that comes out of that clip and it also came out at COP26. We, I'm 60, okay? <laughs> well, actually 62. Um, we are really putting a burden on the children, 
we're putting a burden on the youth. When I think about the pain I see from the Greta Thunbergs to what I saw of Lauren, Lauren in this 15 to 30-year-old time, they're carrying this incredible burden that we've left because we haven't moved fast enough. I've been one of the people that has always said, I have oil company investors. I support them and they support us. And I've compromised my entire career. You've seen my career. I like to partner. I like to work together. I like to do these things. And I think what the youth are saying is, stop it. (laughs) Your compromises are not getting it done. And I feel their pain. I I understand their pain. I don't know how to go faster. But if there's anything I want my generation to realize is that we haven't done a good enough job and that we really need to get on with it. Um, So that's what I would say. Um, If we can engage oil companies, the amount of money, the amount of infrastructure that they command today, if we can engage oil companies, we will move much faster. If you look at companies that Shell is funding, that Suncor is funding to try to develop a new carbon economy, that that amount of money flow is very important relative to what's coming from VCs, relative to what's coming from the Department of Energy. And if I can use their blending infrastructure, as opposed to have to put in another $100 million worth of infrastructure, I can go faster and solve this problem faster. But I can see how a lot of people say, well, you sold out, Jennifer. I super appreciate that perspective. I think others will as well. I, I guess what's coming back to for me is how do you balance that story and perspective you just shared with the earlier comment in the beginning that we're not going back to the dark ages, that we're not going to expect people to not fly airplanes, right? Which is burning fossil fuel to not have air conditioning, which is burning fossil fuel or natural gas. Maybe you have a heat pump and it's electric. Fantastic. But those are two things that conceivably can be on different sides of the spectrum. Yeah, this is, I think this is the real problem, right? Is if we don't substitute for those things, we won't go fast enough because I don't know how you convince people to, you know, when when you think about being a vegetarian, I'm a vegetarian, you start to talk about climate change and eating less meat, right? And, you know, how many people are actually vegetarian or vegan? And we've been talking about this problem for 20 years. And, um, And I know there's a lot of work being done on regenerative agriculture and all these things, but the massive change that's required to bend the carbon curve of agriculture, and and yet we can't make ourselves do it. I mean, are you going to not buy your child a Christmas present? Are you, you know, not going to get on a plane to go see your mother? Um, It's just not possible. And so my view is if we don't substitute for these things in a low carbon way, what will happen eventually is we'll run out of time because the transition, the massive transition of demand that has to happen cannot happen in the next 30 years, 20 years. I mean, and so so that's why I think technology is important. Um, 
I also think we need to be smarter. You know, I remember the ads from Patagonia, do not buy this, don't buy the sweater, right? Because what they wanted you to do is recycle it, reuse it, bring it in, get it. But those are outliers. That's not everybody. I look at Zara and what they're doing is substituting for the polyester. And they're criticized. They say, well, you're mass manufacturing clothing, but you don't realize that they're also thinking about next generation. How do you get the clothing back into the store and reuse it? And and so I think there's this ridiculous, frankly, fight between the people who think that the unicorns will magically appear and the world will bend the carbon curve and the people who say, I just got to take a step. Help me take one step that will give me a reduction. Then I'll take another step and then I'll take another step and eventually we'll solve this problem. Instead, we're fighting with each other. We're arguing about whether this person is holy enough and that person's holy enough. It's not about who's holy enough. It's about how many carbon atoms we prevent from going in the atmosphere. Oh, that is so great. I We need to clone you and then just put you at you. One person will tackle Jen in the bag and, and all these other things. Um, we'll wrap up with a few more questions. Uh, when you think of a sustainability superhero, who comes to mind? Superheroes. <laughs> I oh boy, there are sustainability superheroes. Um, there's a lot of them. There's people like Michael Mann who've been standing up um, and saying that we got to solve this problem. Right? There are people like Hunter Lovins who talk about regenerative agriculture and how important it is to use regenerative agriculture to solve some of these problems. Um, but you can also talk about people like Bill McDonough who are talking about circular economy, who are using the word circular economy before most people even knew what that could mean. Um, I have a lot of respect for a guy named Julia Friedman, who's the carbon wrangler, he calls himself, who is a big proponent for putting carbon back in the ground. Any carbon that comes out needs to be put back in. I could go through a huge list. There are so many people. There are not any single superheroes. I think actually the, the most important thing we need to accept is that this problem will be solved by community and partnership. It's 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 everybody. And, and I always like to say that, um, you know, I come at it from technology. You come at it in this case today with the podcast through journalism, right? And communication. And every individual in our economy has the ability to contribute to solving this problem. And, and that's the community that's going to solve it. Um, it's that partnership. If you were to recommend one book um, about sustainability, circular economy, whatever it was in, in that realm, what would you recommend? It would be Bill's book on Cradle to Cradle. Great. Okay. Amazing. Jennifer, thank you so much for the time. If people want to stay in touch, what's the best way to follow your work? Um, Lancetech.com um, and our Twitter feed, Lancetech, right? Is, and um, I, I'm to the dogs because I'm a dog person. Um, but yeah, we're always on social media communicating what we're doing and trying to do. And you could always send an email to jennifer at lancetech.com. I reply to everything I can. Thanks again to Jennifer for joining us today. You can connect with her on Twitter at todadogs, that's T-O-D-A-D-O-G-S, or by emailing jennifer at lancetech.com. We'll put it in the show notes. 
You can learn more about Lanza Tech by following their Twitter feed at Lanza Tech or visiting their website, lanzatech.com, also in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt. The original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe wherever you listen and check out our socials at the Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is the Net Zero Life. Life.